Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Everybody, Barb Higgins here, beginning episode 60 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So if you notice in my background, most of you who are watching, I'm back in my own living room for a bit. This has been the week of hell in my household with the tummy bug. First Gracie, then me, now my mother, my sister. <laughs> We're all waiting for Kenny and Jack-Jack to get it. So I've been a bit, you know, housebound, not wanting to go out, spread the love, so to speak. So I've re-listened several times to my last two or three episodes after my sophomore year. And that was a big year in my collegiate reality. That was a year that I made All-American. It was a year that I began dating David. You know, aside from, I suppose, each of my marriages and my relationship with Roy, that's the most significant relationship in my life. You know, Jay was also very significant, you know, a two-year relationship. That's not a short amount of time. I've never gone on dates. Like, oh, I'll date this person, date this person. It's always been fairly significant relationships with me. And I haven't had lots of them, but I've had intense ones. So David is where I sort of left off and looking at my 1983 and completing my sophomore year and coming home and spending the summer with Sally. That was, that was a turning point in my life. I think, I think if I turned the corner into young adulthood, it happened then. And when I went back to Boston after the summer of 1983, I wouldn't live at home again until the summer of 1986. And even that was just sort of temporary. I really became a citizen of Boston and I lived and worked year round in the city. And that was, you know, a big change for me. I went from Compton, New Hampshire girl to a city of Boston girl. Also in my sophomore year that I didn't talk about in the last episode, that was the year that my eyes were really open to the world of drugs. Now, lucky for me, I was a scholarship athlete. And so I had structure and discipline built into my reality. My college was being paid for. I was going for free. So I didn't have the freedom or the flexibility to just do what I wanted. I had to stay healthy as best I could. And the running injuries were the most obvious form of pressure there. But when I really think back and what I would say to young people now, and what I often said to the runners that I coached is that you have a finite time to enjoy this free education and run for a division one university. You can drink alcohol and snort cocaine and smoke pot and take pills your whole entire life, but you have these opportunities that are limited by time. If I could go back and change things, you know, we all think we could go back and change things. The one thing I really would focus on, if I could go back with any knowledge at all, would be the substance abuse and how it affected me as an asthmatic and how I always did the training and I always worked out hard, but I didn't always follow it through with eating well and going to bed on time and not drinking on the weekends or partying. My sophomore year was also a time that I was introduced to cocaine. Now, I know this might sound alarming to a lot of people listening to this. During my sophomore year, while I was training hard, while I was, was taking care of myself better than I ever had, while I was abstaining from drugs and alcohol in the immediate times of my track meets and my competitive seasons. I was very good at quitting. I got competing 
we didn't party, you know, the parties were over until the season was over. And so I was very good at that. So I was able to run really well. I was able to get straight A's. I met this wonderful boy, David. So I finished my, my sophomore year of college feeling like I, again, had really arrived that I was living this normal, healthy, awesome life. I was going to an unbelievably prestigious college for free. I was doing well there. I was an All-American. I, to this day, I hold the honor of being the first All-American at BU for women as an NCAA athlete. I'll never forget those things. I did not have the wherewithal. And of course, I had all of the issues around my trauma and the PTSD around the abuse and then the addictive personalities to not have much guidance or much success in avoiding the inevitable in some ways. And that would, for me would be addiction. I remember as a health educator, years later, I often talk about my students and say, if you have to choose an addiction, please choose anything but food. As you can't avoid food, you know, alcoholics don't get sober in bars. They avoid alcohol. That's the beginning step. And people that are anorexic or bulimic or binge eaters, it's the equivalent of having to get sober in a bar. It's having to quit shooting up under a bridge with a bunch of other people who are shooting up. A nearly impossible task sometimes. I have such respect and awe and tenderness and empathy and sympathy for anorexics, bulimics, and people with issues around food. But you cannot avoid food. You need food to live and you do not need alcohol to live. You do not need cocaine to live. You do not need marijuana to live. These are not things that, that you will die if you don't have. They may provide comfort and pleasure and be wonderful to use, but they aren't necessary in life. And so while I was honing my academic skills and honing my athletic skills and becoming a runner, I also was exposed to, to cocaine. And actually, this happened at a New Year's Eve party with a whole bunch of friends of mine from Concord, which is kind of funny. I had to go to Boston, you know, to sort of find it. But I'll never forget how that felt the first time. And I share this because it's important, because it's not something that I jumped into at all, because it felt so good that the athletic competitive athlete in me knew right away that this was playing with fire. That if I got into the habit of using cocaine on a regular basis, I was done for. Now, lucky for me, I didn't have any connections in Boston. No one on my track team that I know of, if I'm wrong, correct. No one on my track team did coke. There was some pot smoking, but even not a lot of that because we're runners and we need our lungs to be healthy. The primary form of drug abuse for us was alcohol and we drank plenty. The parties were legendary. I don't remember chunks of them. I remember they were fun. I remember so many hangovers. I remember all of it. You know, it marked my college life. You know, how much, how much partying did you do? And I was always more comfortable around people who partied. And that was because it made me feel okay about the partying. So I add that in because... Drug and alcohol abuse has taken a pretty big role in my life on and off throughout the years. And I would be remiss if I didn't add in to my wonderful sophomore year that at the same time, I was exposed to Coke. I would say between then and when I came home to Concord in 1986, I probably only did it seven or eight times. It just wasn't something I had access to. And I'm lucky I, because I knew if something's going to take me down, it's Coke. This was something later as a health educator that I was also very honest about. And it's funny, for all the things I got let go of in my job, it was never my honesty around talking to athletes about drugs. I was very honest about it and tried very much to use my experiences to help the young people in front of me make more informed choices. So 1983, August, Sally goes back to Illinois and I go back to Boston. I begin my junior year and she begins her senior year. I started all four years of cross country. This is not lost on me either when it comes to running injuries, responsive coaching, and me, how I took care of myself. I came into every September at BU, every cross country training camp. We went to the Cape three of my four years. In my fifth year, we went to Maine. Coming into my junior year, 
at you, things would take a turn positively and negatively, which again is the story of my life. So we had a new distance coach. His name was Bruce Lahane. And he was immediately so well received by all of us because he knew what he was talking about. Things weren't always smooth. I mean, you know, things weren't always comfortable and easy. But, you know, when you're surrounded by a group of really messed up teenage girls and women in their early 20s, you know, what is going to be smooth? Training was much more solid and we had a much lower injury rate. And things in that regard were much better. Practices were more organized. Bruce was a man of few words. And, you know, I was kind of used to coaches giving me a lot of information as I was running and a lot of things ahead of the race. And how do you think I did? And when I would say to Bruce, how do you think I should run today? He would look at me and say, well, fast. <laughs> okay. You know, he, he really left a lot of it up to us. And it was that way in workouts as well. See how the first one feels and let's see how you go after that. I learned so much about the sport of running from Bruce Lahane in my years as a scholarship athlete at BU. So lucky. Also at this time, during this year, Leslie and Lisa Welch showed up. They are identical twins from Peabody, Mass. And I knew of them through running against them when we were you know, running in high school. I knew of them through Liberty Athletic Club, an all-girls and women's track club that's located in Boston. And so there was all this hubbub. The Welsh twins are coming. The Welsh twins are coming. So they had gone off to the University of Virginia. And I don't know the ins and outs of why they changed, nor is that my story to tell. But it was big news that they were showing up at BU because they were amazing runners. And this would change exponentially the level of our program at BU. Leslie would never run for BU. She let go of bleach running at that time. Of the two twins, she was the one that had a bit more success in the running. She has the faster PRs, I think. Lisa had a much more rich college career than Leslie. Leslie ended up not running for BU at all. And sort of a, a wonderful side note is Leslie and Lisa show up and Leslie and Bruce, our coach, fell in love. They ended up getting married and they were married for 30 years anyway. And then Bruce sadly died of ALS a year after Molly died. That was an incredibly sad time. So, you know, back to my whole theme of young female athletes with their older coaches, you know, a 30-year marriage to me is a healthy relationship. But when you look at the nature of its beginning and all, it's easy to go round and round on it. And of course, there was all the whispering and the oohs around Leslie and Bruce, but that was a relationship that we all could, could strive to have and, and hope to have in our lives. So cross country in the fall of my junior year, Lisa could not yet run for us. She had the red shirt, so she was not eligible until track. But we had a wonderful time. Linda had established herself now. She was coming into her sophomore year. We had this amazing group of runners. We started to really build ourselves up as a team. We had some greater Boston championship titles. We had some dual meet wins. We had some great efforts at the Easterns. We had a really, really good season. This year, I would not run in any of the championship efforts. I had a recurrence of my plantar fasciitis. That's a running injury that is unfixable. Although I've had surgery on both my feet and they are completely fixed. So as the season went along, my foot got more sore and more sore. And I would go to the training room and we did all the normal things, the ultrasound and the electric stem and the icing and the stretching and the massaging and nothing was working. And I taped it all up. We had a workout to do. We had the championship season coming up and I didn't want to lose fitness. And so I taped it up. There was a special tape job you could do to your foot to support the arch. And I went running and I stepped off a curb and I remember it didn't hurt, but my foot suddenly felt hot and full of fluid. And I thought that was odd. I thought something was odd. And then every time I landed on it running back, it wouldn't support my weight at all. It's like I collapsed under it. So I had to walk back to school, rather hobble back to the training room. When Gary, the trainer, pulled the tape off my foot, it swelled up immediately and turned black and blue and everything else. So the, the sad news there is I ruptured my plantar fascia. 
and I would have to have surgery. So I was immediately put on crutches and put into a boot and I was done and likely done for the year. And I was heartbroken. I was coming off a season where I thought that I had gotten All-American for the first time, not knowing that would be the only time I would be an All-American. It was really very, very devastating. And of course, very hard for someone, someone in my situation to maintain any sort of solid training because I just didn't care anymore. I was living off campus now in an off-campus apartment with Vicki and Caroline, and I think her name is Lisa. Vicki ran on a track team, and these two other women were friends of hers. She was a you know, communications major. I believe these were friends of hers from her classes. And so we had this beautiful apartment on Kelton Street in Brookline. It had a Brookline you know, mailing address, but it's right on the border of Austin. A wonderful apartment. It was so fun, although I spent most of my time at David's, quite honestly. I did not spend a lot of time in my apartment. I also remember that the more I fell in love with David, the more dangerous that relationship felt. And, you know, if I could go back and undo all the times I heard him, I would spend a lot of time undoing all the times I heard him. David was just one of those people. He didn't say a lot sometimes. He, he pondered a lot. He kept a lot in. He was unbelievably, probably still is, a sensitive, tender human being. And I was a, a damaged sort of basket case. And when we had good times, we had a blast. And we, we loved each other so intensely. I had never, even though I had been in love with Jay and all the feelings I had had around Jay and science guy and whatever that was, David was truly my first healthy, normal love affair and romance and relationship. And he came home to my house and I went to his house. We met our families. It was just this amazing, amazing thing. And, you know, and I still had all of my issues. I still had my over drinking. You know, there were times that, you know, I wasn't all that faithful to David. And it wasn't like I wanted to be in love with someone else or have extra relationships and such. I was a very, very dangerous blackout drinker. And I would sometimes wake up in the morning and I laugh about it now and try to make it funny. But when I really look at it in terms of what a damaged child I was, you know, when I look at how old Gracie is and she's older now than I was this particular college year I'm talking about. And I think of all the craziness in my life and I ache for my, I ache for a 20 year old Barb because she just, was trying really hard to keep her head above water. And so once I was injured, you know, things really changed. I was on crutches. I was on crutches for months. And so again, in this day and age, having my foot in a boot, I had metal pins sticking out of my three toes this past April. And I didn't miss a CrossFit workout once. I didn't miss a coaching workout. I got a scooter and I used the crutches and I worked around my broken foot. But back then I didn't know how to do that. I did some pool running where you just go run in the pool, but you know, I had to hobble all the way to the swimming pool to do it. I had to get on the subway and it was all overwhelming and impossible for me. And so I just did nothing. I did nothing from my entering it in late October to surgery. I don't even remember when the surgery was. I believe it was in November. And then I was in a cast. Yes, all through the Christmas holiday. I went back and got the cast off after Christmas. And then, you know, six weeks in a cast, they don't do that at all now. And I spent the rest of my sophomore year trying really hard to rehab my foot. And of course, every time I saw the athletic director, it was, what do I do? You know, how soon till you can run again? How soon till you can run again? And in his defense, he probably just really wanted me to feel better and was hoping that I was going to give him good news. But all it did was remind me that I wasn't doing my job, that I wasn't earning my free education. It was very hard to wrap my head around that. My junior year, I got a job working for a radio station. I did all this media research. So we cold call people and have them listen to music and tell us what they thought about certain songs. It was tedious, horrible work. I made up a name. I was Chelsea Coe. I met a wonderful, wonderful friend named Brenda, Brenda Moquin. Hi, Brenda. I met her at that job. We became longtime friends. I ended up living with her years later. I'll get to that. And I started to establish a bigger life around the Boston community. I got more involved 
with timing and helping at road races and officiating track meets because I couldn't run. You know, and, and once I was in a boot and I could hobble around, I could at least help and participate in that way. I continued taking all of my education classes. And the one smart thing I did, I will say this, is when I knew I couldn't run for the next semester, I took extra classes. I had a full scholarship. And so at BU, it was four, four classes per semester, but you could take a fifth class and then I took a summer class. So I got a bit ahead of myself. I got a bit ahead in my education classes. In my mind thinking, I'm now going to miss another indoor season and an outdoor season, which means I'll have half a year of, of eligibility as a fifth year senior or a graduate student. And so for all the things I didn't do right in college, that was a good decision I made. So I spent a lot of time studying. I maintained my grades, but it was a very difficult time for me. And my demons took hold. As I've said before, women that were abused as young girls in a sexual manner have an unbelievably difficult relationship with being believed and with being validated and with not having their, their words mixed up. And gaslighting is horribly, horribly prevalent in how Sexual abuse victims are manipulated by their abusers because they want you off footing and off balance. You're an easier target that way. So I didn't know any of these words. Some of these words I've just learned since Jack's birth and I've started all of this process. So I finished my junior year. So that was 83, 84. Not at all where I thought I'd be. I thought I would have qualified for the Olympic trials, which are happening then. Joni won the Olympic trials in the marathon and went on to the Olympic games. A bunch of my collegiate buddies, my teammates went to LA to watch her run. Here was my former coach and she was the first female to win a gold medal in the Olympics. And I wasn't there. I just didn't have it in me to go. I, I really became disconnected. I will say the positive side of this is I became very connected to David's family. They lived right outside of Boston. He is one of six kids, just such a classic, wonderful blue collar American family. Now, the town they lived in is a bit upper crusty, but they were as normal as the day is long. David's dad was a firefighter in a nearby town. His mom was a stay-at-home mom. His family, so connected, just so connected. He did so many things with relatives on both sides of his family. He had three brothers, two sisters, neighborhood friends. There was a neighborhood family right around the corner, and they had 12 kids. So there's 18 kids between two houses growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in. We played street hockey outside. They had this little social club called the Cellar Dwellers because they all hung out in the cellar. And that was also such a common thing when I was growing up. Rec rooms in the basement was a big thing. You live in New England, houses have basements. That isn't true everywhere in the country, but in the basements in New England are deep. You can stand up down there. They're not just crawl spaces. And, and so many people built rooms in their basements. And David's family, their house, they had a great rec room down there with TV and you know, ping pong and pool and all the things you'd expect in a downstairs room. And so I became a very common feature at David's house. And I'm quite sure I was probably overbearing sometimes. He has a sister my age and then a sister, my sister Johanna's age. So that was a nice connection. And actually my sister Johanna, who went by Jody then, got friendly with Diane, David's youngest sister. He came up to Concord a couple of times and I brought Jody to the Cape a couple of times. That was a nice connection. But that became big for me. All that David's family was, mine wasn't. You know, not that his family didn't have ups and downs. Don't we all have our struggles? But what his family had was this consistency that you were there for one another and that certain things weren't tolerated. And, you know, you could count on things, count on any holiday that was on the calendar was celebrated in some manner by his family. And I remember wonderful Saturday night games of Trivial Pursuit. And, you know, every summer, the two-week vacation at the Cape and the whole family went down. So there was this cottage had his aunts and uncles in it. And this cottage has had his mom and dad in it. And this cottage had us in it. You know, it was just, it was a level of family that was 
new to me. And not that I didn't have a solid family. I never want to insinuate that. But David's family still, when I go on social media now, 30 years later, 40 years later, and look at the Facebook pages and the Instagram accounts of his siblings, they are as connected as ever. And I'm still connected to them through the social media. They have golf tournaments and they're every holiday they're there. You know, they just had to sell their family home. And of course, with all the building going on in and around their hometown, this beautiful, beautiful Victorian home was demolished to build some probably hideous condo development. It's heart-wrenching the way that time changes and how time has passed by and things aren't what they used to be and everything is just so different. But they stay true. This family stays true. And, and I love so much, love the connections that I maintain. That, I say, was a very positive part of my junior year in college. The summer after my junior year, the summer of 1984, I remained in Boston. I lived on Glenville Avenue with Donna and Linda and Jody. I worked at Bill Rogers Running Center. I had a couple of different jobs. I actually worked at a running store in a fancy mall, Copley Place Mall or Copley Plaza, someplace like that. And I worked with this guy named Jeffrey Abel Samrad. He was hilarious. And we had so much fun. And we used to dress me up. I was thin, 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 very, very thick, thin, very androgynous looking female. I was muscular. If you know me, you know that I'm, I'm the same width around. One of my nicknames in high school was the human stick. And so we would have a blast dressing me up in these really swanky dresses from Neiman Marcus. We had the tag removed, you know, so you could remove the tags and then wear the dress and then dry clean it tags back on. <laughs> I probably shouldn't admit to these things, but that summer was, was a much different summer for me. It was the first time that I really felt like I was on my own now, that I wasn't attached in the same way and connected in the same way to my family. And I didn't mind. I had David's family. I was at his house all summer and a lot of our escapades, his poor mother, I, I just think back, his dad was a firefighter and active firefighter still. He was gone a lot. And <laughs> David's poor mother had to put up with all these drunk hooligans. A number of his siblings still lived at home. I think all of them did actually. All the time, partying going on, lots and lots of drinking beer and sitting around fires and wonderful times. So after the summer of 1984, entering my senior year of college, I got an apartment with Alyssa. And Alyssa was a physical therapy major and she was also on the track team. We got an apartment in Austin at 1258 Common. And we were roommates. And so it was teeny. You walked in and you were in this teeny little room. And my bedroom was what was, should have been the living room. And Alyssa had the bedroom. And we lived there for a year, my senior year. That year, I, again, I spent a lot of my time with David. David had graduated by then. So he was back living at home. And I was doing a lot of student teaching. My senior year was another one. I had a, I had a car. I had this 1969 Delta 88 Oldsmobile. So I began my senior year with a car. It was interesting to part. I was student teaching in Newton, Mass. So I was busy all day, every day doing that and running cross country. And again, I entered that season fit. I was fit and ready to go. And I would not complete that season either. I sprained my ankle at the very end of it and missed out on, well, I ran the end of that season, but I did terribly. I was running on a very, very damaged ankle at that time. So my senior year was really more about salvaging an indoor and an, out, an indoor and an outdoor track season, as I didn't have that before. And I did okay. I look at my senior year now as really being much more focused on the academics. You know, I'm a full scholarship athlete. Not only do I have to run fast, but I have to get good grades. I have to be a good student representative to Boston University. And I was. And by then, our team was so well established. We had lots of new people. But the core group of us that had come in as freshmen really weren't still solid, really did stay together. And so I stayed in my relationship with David. He was close enough and still enough connected to BU that it wasn't uncomfortable or awkward to be with him. 
We had our ups and downs. I will say my senior year was probably the year that we struggled the most until the year that we ended up breaking up. I have to say it was primarily me. I was a very needy, needy, horribly needy girlfriend. I kept him. I remember the whole men's team was traveling somewhere and I refused to let him go. We had had some horrible traumatic event between us. I can't even remember now. And I'm like, you have to stay. You can't leave me. And he didn't. He stayed. You know, like he gave up a free 10-day trip in the winter to someplace warm to train with the men's team to stay with me. Bruce came to our house, came to his house where I was staying to convince him to, to go on the trip. And he didn't go. That's the kind of guy he is and was. I have to let him off the hook. There was nothing at that point in my life that anyone could have done to fix me. I had to fix myself. I go back a lot to my time with David when I'm pondering the choices I've made since and how my life has turned out. So all of my senior year was getting back into and reestablishing myself as a runner and doing a ton of partying. So in living with Alyssa, I had sort of a different social group. I had a lot more of her friends. Not that we didn't all hang out with the same people, but we all had different majors. And so I was able to meet some other people. As I sit here giving this narrative, I don't have a lot of strong memories of my senior year. I had good races, not great races. We had a new head coach. His name was Pete Shooter, and he came mid-year. And Jan Samuelson showed up, and she's the sister-in-law now of Joni. So coming out of my senior year, I graduated from college. So now I'm a college graduate, and that could have been it. But I still had a full semester of eligibility. So I was given a tuition scholarship, as was Marty Shen. Two of us were both given a fifth year. This is a wonderful opportunity. Marty and I each got a one-year master's degree out of it. I had taken some classes ahead of time, and as had Marty, I believe. PE major back then was called human movement. I don't know if it's still called that now. So our master's degree, I believe my, my diploma says human movement. I'm not quite sure. And adaptive PE for me. I did the special ed piece because I have that. So the summer after we graduated, Alyssa, she moved into Glendale where I had lived. And Marty moved in with me. And so I had the same apartment, but now I was living with Marty and not with Alyssa. And we began our graduate school year. So neither of us were running cross country that year because neither, neither of us had that eligibility. Marty had not missed any cross-country season. We both worked, we both trained, still had my car. We're wonderful roommates. She had a very serious relationship at that time with a guy named Gary. So he was at the apartment a lot. I was still with David. And it's funny because neither of us were ready to graduate. And the moment school started, we we're like, oh God, we don't want to be here. It was like an instantaneous shift. The summer after I graduated was another Boston summer. Marty and I worked for Buildings and Grounds at BU. We mowed lawns and we smacked half-dead rats with shovels and put them in buckets. Disgusting. <laughs> we painted chain link fences. It was actually a blast. We had a really, really good time. And we were the only two women that, that worked like that, that did that. David went down to the Cape that summer. He spent a lot of time away. We broke up, sort of. I remember he started seeing someone else a little bit, and I, I lost it. I went nuts. Did everything I could to get him back, and I did get him back. And we ended up, you know, my, my graduate school year, so this was his second year out of school now, he and I were back together. We spent a lot of time together in college. We're at each other's apartments all the time. We probably slept together every night. It was like we lived together, even though we each had our own apartments. I remember he did a student teaching gig on the North Shore in Swampscott. He'd have to get up at like five in the morning. It was awful. I just felt so bad for him because you have to take public transportation and it was like an hour commute either way. Those were the ups and downs sometimes of the full scholarship bit. You couldn't just take a semester off from that. You had to do it. My senior year, indoor track, I was incredibly sick and I was so frustrated. We went to the Mill Road Games. It was the so winter of 1986 and I was so sick, I ended up in St. Elizabeth's Hospital. I had an asthma attack. I couldn't breathe. My throat hurt. I was a mess and I could not get better. And so what happened was I 
finally went to my doctor at home and I had tonsillitis. So they gave me antibiotics and the tonsillitis went away. And then the moment I stopped the antibiotics, they swelled right up again. They were not going to get better. I was running times. I was training hard. I was drinking. I was living such a good life in terms of wanting to be a fit athlete and I could not get better. And so I realized I needed to have my tonsils out. So this is nothing for a six-year-old or an eight-year-old or a four-year-old, but for a 21-year-old woman. So I had my tonsils taken out and it was horrifying. It was probably one of the worst experiences I've ever had. They kept you overnight in the hospital. Then I came home the next day. The first time I took a sip, the milk I drank came right out my nose. The pain was unbelievable. I really couldn't eat. I couldn't eat for days. I was at a chaise lounge with a lawn chair in my the TV room in Concord on Essex Street, just wanting to get better. And so I lost like 15 pounds. So I will say this is the one time I flirted with the idea of anorexia. So I weighed probably 110 before I got sick, 112 at the most. When I came back to school, I weighed 94 pounds. So that's what, 16 pound loss right there. And so I remember my coach was Bruce, who was not someone that pushed being thin in an unhealthy way. But the idea was the skinny girls won the races and just try to find that balance. And so I got back and I cannot tell you how much better I felt. And so the first race I ran in, I ran under 430 in the 1500. I had not broken 430 in the 1500 since my freshman year, since I came to BU. So this was huge. All of a sudden I could, I could run fast again. And it was because I wasn't carrying this infection. So the remainder of my outdoor season, I ran a 326, 1200 meter leg of the distance medley relay at the Penn Relays that year. 326. I was back to where I had been when I made All-American. And I was just, I was so excited. So of course my goal came to qualify for nationals. And so the race that I thought it would happen, and I shared this not because any of you understand racing, although some of you might, but it's because I started chasing this goal and really wanted to qualify for nationals. And I was finally healthy and running well. I skipped my graduation. It was my master's degree graduation. I remember Marty didn't skip it. She skipped the track meet and stayed for graduation. I didn't. I went to the track meet because I so badly wanted to qualify for nationals. And there was a girl on my team named Beth. And she and I had quite a rivalry. And so I had a really good preliminary round in the 1500. I warmed up in my cap and gown with my master's degree hood. I was all excited and just, I was going to qualify for nationals. And so I'm running in the race and I feel pretty good, but not great, but I'm okay still. I'm mentally okay. And with 200 meters left, somebody sprints by me and I think, oh, that's okay. I'll go with them. Well, it was Beth. And I locked up rigid and she took off and I just quit. I gave up on myself and I ran 426, which still isn't a bad time, but I believe qualifying time was 421. So she ended up qualifying for nationals in a race two later. And I did not. And I was frantic. I was just a devastated mess. And so I went to Texas. I went chasing times. And, you know, I went to Houston and then I went to Austin and I ran in track meets in both places. And the nicest people put me up. And I remember after one of the track meets, one of the officials had said, if you told me you needed a qualifying time, I would have given that to you. Which, of course, you don't want to cheat to go to nationals. But I just so very much wanted to end my career on a better note than I was going to. But I will say I ran personal best times in every event that spring. It was the best. And I can't be sad about that part because I did finish my collegiate career running really well. That got me into running for Nike Boston, which I'll get into in my next episode. So I guess if I had to wrap up this episode and all the stories I've tried to tell here, my entire life in tracing back all the steps, all the steps, the mistakes I've made, to the joys I've had, to the failures, to the successes, always in my life, the good and the bad, existed at the same time, happy and sad, fat and thin, healthy and injured, smart and stupid, that in my life, it really never has been the word but. And it's a, it's a word that I've put on myself so much in my life. 
you know, I came off halfway through my, what I thought would be my collegiate career. I was on top of the world. And my junior year and my senior year and my postgraduate year were filled with strife, were filled with copious amounts of drinking and not as much cocaine use as I, I really had to go back and look through running logs and I kept track of all that stuff. And not as much as I remember. You pile that stuff on, I think. But I do know that I didn't really consider myself many times an elite athlete. I just didn't. I felt for the most part like I was a failure. And my relationship with David was, was difficult. I loved him with that frantic, panic love that only someone like me can feel. And I couldn't imagine life with him sometimes, nor could I imagine life without him. But he was my person and he stuck by me for a long, long time. As I graduated that year, my PG year, <laughs> I had a master's in, in adaptive PE. It was the spring of 1986 and I had no plans. I didn't have an actual teaching position I was going to have. I had to take a couple of more classes in order to get my teaching certificate. Even though I received the diploma, I still had those two classes that I needed to take for it to be official. And I did that in summer school at Salem State. One of my biggest memories of Marty and I toward the end of our grad school year is writing our thesis proposals. And she was working on hers around road racing and 10K running. And mine was ADHD and regular exercise with elementary school boys. And we got sick and tired of our own. We were drinking coffee and eating Pop-Tarts. And oh my gosh, just we stayed up all weekend, of course, doing it at the last minute. And then we switched to work on each other's for a while and then went back to our own. It was, that was teamwork right there. And so that was it. We graduated, we got our master's degrees and sort of went our separate ways. Marty and I didn't see each other for a long time after that. We, we had a quite a big division in our friendship for a long, long time. In May of, of 1986, I had received five years of college education for free. I did take out a $5,000 loan to pay living expenses and such, you know, which was not difficult to pay off at all. That is not lost on me. When I berate myself, I have to look down and thank my legs and thank my feet for carrying me for five years and giving me a free education. What's the lesson in my experiences? Well, there is no lesson, really. It's a very heady, awesome experience to get a full scholarship. I still can't believe sometimes that I accomplished all that I did. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of stress. At times, it took what I loved most about running completely away. Do I wish I had gone to different colleges? Oh, don't we all wish we could go back and do things differently? But I love the city of Boston. I still know it quite well. I met amazing people. The Boston running community is amazing and terrific. I still have many friends from those days now. Maybe a year ago, me and all of my teammates for my freshman year, plus Leslie and Lisa and Linda, we all had a Zoom call and Vicky, and we all got together on Zoom with Joni and just had like a little reunion. It was amazing. Social media has really perpetuated that and allowed these kinds of relationships to continue. And I'm so glad because I've reintroduced myself to people I forgot even existed. <laughs> like you forget you met somebody sometimes. And so, you know, when I look back on the ups and downs of being a college student, you know, I have a lot to be thankful for. So I hope this wasn't too all over the place for you. I guess I was just trying to fill out my college career. I had an, an amazing relationship with David. I had a tumultuous relationship with David. I ran really good times. I was sick and injured a lot. I made stupid choices around drugs and alcohol. I took extra courses and got a master's degree completed in one year. There it is, the life of Barbara Higgins. So anyway, as I wrap up this and look ahead, we'll be going into some of my years after college, but I hope this was enjoyable for you. I hope you are well and happy. I hope that you are all doing good things for yourselves before you do good things for others. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Times Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. 
I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.